I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Welcome to Encountering Silence, and today's topic is a chance for us to explore something I think that's interesting, silence and rhythm. The ways that silence can create rhythm, it can enhance the notes of our day, the rhythm and the almost the choral or chordal quality of life as we go forward. The time in silence can strain out the noise in our life and kind of direct the proper way to approach the everyday. So how rhythm comes into it through silence. And I think this is such a rich topic. It has many directions to go. And I was wondering, what is the first thing, in saying silence and rhythm, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that topic? Heartbeat. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Flesh that one for me. In between every beat of the heart is a moment of silence. And... We live, if a person lives a normal life with, with average or good health, their heart will beat about three trillion times over the course of their lifetime. So they will have three trillion moments of silence wow. in, between those, in between those heartbeats. That's mm. beautiful. Okay, we can stop right there. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, that's lovely because I think that I, I, I am so glad you started off with that because I think that really does set uh, a tone for the rest of this, for this rest of this episode for me, because it sounds so abstract to say something like, what is, how does silence and rhythm go together? And yet you've just given us an embodied, actual sense that mm-hmm. rhythm and silence go hand in hand. Yeah. And then I think you can just extrapolate out from that the rhythm of breath, you know, and we know that that contemplative traditions the world over have anchored the encounter with silence with the breath. That's right. You know, you, you, you go take a meditation 101 class at the Shambhala Center or at a mindfulness center or any place like that. And what are they going to do? They're going to put you on a cushion and they're going to say, follow your breath for 20 minutes. That's Mm -hmm. right. I love what you said about about the heartbeat, because in a sense, you know, before you spoke, I was thinking about silence creating the rhythm. So in another in other words, I was kind of thinking about the offbeat of the heartbeat and how that feeds into the rhythm of, of our lives. And, you know, as we well know, poets, musicians, everyone tends to a particular rhythm in their life. And whether that's based on the times they sleep, the times they eat, the times they pray. We all kind of have a sense of our natural rhythm. And, you know, we all have a lot of friends, I'm sure, that are either night people or morning people. And it's amazing to think the ways that rhythm influences that. But silence as the offbeat, 
There is no rhythm without the silence. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. The silence is what punctuates and causes this. And to, to flesh with Carl, I, I, I thought of breath. As soon as he said heartbeat, I thought breath. And, and, and he's so mm-hmm. right. I mean, whether it's the Buddhists or, the, or yoga, they'll talk about breath. But in the Christian tradition, the Jesus prayer is, is done on the breath uh, and has been around for a long time. I, I think of the famous story, I don't know if you've ever seen this, and I'm pretty sure I read this in a book by Richard Rohr, but I've also heard an actual rabbi use this story as well, the story that somebody talked about prayer, and uh, this rabbi said something along the lines of, we Jewish people have this great relationship with God, and we, and God gave us God's name, you know, that's the sacred name that we, it's unpronounceable, actually, in Hebrew, and, you know, oftentimes... You know, we try to pronounce it and say what it is, but those those letters of the sacred name really can't be spoken, and it's guessed and everything else. And he leaned into the microphone and made a comment and said, actually, he says, uh, a lot of rabbis think it sounds something like this, and he just did this. Which is the mm-hmm. which is the name of God, and, and it's just the thought of every time you breathe, you're saying God's name. Mm. It, and and the pause in between. So the it just sounds profound. I think it fleshes right in with what Cassidy just said. I, I I love the idea of the offbeat and that silence does guide us and allowing that to guide an appropriate way toward the world, right? Because sometimes we we fall out of our own rhythm. You say, Cassidy said we have night people or morning people or whatever, but think about how you wake up in the morning and you're stressed out and the alarm clock goes off and you run out and you race to do your things and you feel like all day you're trying to catch up. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you have the moment of silence, taking the moment, or I need to get away, I need to take that walk, I need to take that breath, all of a mm-hmm. sudden you come home. And you feel like you can approach the world in a better way. And while that sounds like just simple mental health, just common embodied practice, honestly, I think it, it goes even deeper than that. It, it really gets profoundly at, a, at another level, at an ontological level, not just a psychological one. Well, and with you guys, you know, speaking about the heartbeats and speaking about the breath, what I find so interesting is when that is kind of taken to your sacred rhythm or your sacred core, you get to a place of letting go and f- forgetting, right? You forget that you're breathing. You forget that your heart's beating. So it's another form of silence. It's a, it's a deepening silence, not just the offbeat, but it's also a place that is transcendental in some way. It's, you know, it's, it's tr- transporting you. Some people, people will all describe this differently, but it's also when you're in touch with that rhythm, it takes you to another place of silence, that letting go. Right, right. So what are things that you find that stop or limit silence and rhythm interacting less fruitful ways that you found in your own life? Just some place where maybe the rhythm falls out. Well, I'm going to begin kind of with a very, I'm not much of a drummer, but I've done a little bit of drumming over the years. And I have found that the biggest threat 
to me, being able to keep a beat is my own self-consciousness. Mm. It's kind of, you know, going back to that, I was a Cassidy who just suggested this idea that, that the rhythm falls away and we enter into a deeper silence. I think about that, you know, any kind of creative endeavor, you know, you think about musicians getting into the zone or, you know, the Grateful Dead used to talk about the group mind, you know, those kinds of things where where it seems like the creative process, I think, wasn't there um, a book a couple of years ago called Flow, which talks about this, where the, the, you know, the, the, the creative process takes us to a place beyond thought, beyond cognition, a place of pure presence. And mm -hmm. I think that that is a place of profound silence, even if you are a rock and roll uh, <laughs> a rock star like like Jerry Garcia filling, you know, a stadium with your 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 guitar solo. But if you're in that place, it's like you're in a place of interior silence as mm -hmm. you're as you as you're doing that. So so but back to Kevin's question. So for me, the challenge has always been I mean, it's really like in 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 a meditation practice where it's it's easy to find silence it's much harder to stay in the silence yeah that you know i often find that when i when i find that that silent place within myself i i just want to be howard cosell and i want to say look you found it there it is you're in the <laughs> silence but then i'm not in the silence i'm <laughs> yeah. thinking about the silence you know right but then let me let me just up the ante a little I think that even that has its own rhythm. So there's this rhythm of self-consciousness and of self-forgetfulness. I'm reading Maggie Ross's beautiful, you know, Silence Volume 2 right now, which I just think is a brilliant book, at least as far as I've gotten. I'm in the chapter on the New Testament, and I'm highlighting like every single sentence practically. <laughs> yeah, but, it's um, unfortunately, yeah, that's the case. The whole book, you should but, just be yellow. Yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just so brilliant. But, you know, she talks about this kind of, you know, elision into the deep mind. And yet the reality is, is that we fall into the deep mind and then we fall out of the deep mind and we fall in and we fall out. And I think that 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 is really kind of the ordinary, almost cognitive experience that at least I have. You know, I suppose, you know, you get to the level of the Dalai Lama or Meister Eckhart or someone like that, you know, and you drop in and you stay for however long. But I think for most of us mere mortals, it's it's a rhythm. You know, right. it's this this rhythm of self-awareness, self-forgetfulness, self-awareness, self-forgetfulness. And, and I think when I recognize that, it really it really opened up my sitting practice. Mm -hmm. Because I think like, like so many people, I would sit and I would struggle with how noisy my meditation was. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, and I still have good days and bad days. You know, I'm, I'm listening to a Pema Chodron audio recording right now. And, and she talks about, you know, and she's been doing this for 50 years and she talks about having good days and bad days makes you feel a little bit better. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 but I think part of that is that it's like, sometimes we live with the rhythm more gently and other times we struggle with the rhythm and it's the days we struggle with the rhythm that we end up calling it. This was a bad day. Well, it wasn't a bad day. It just was what it was. Right. But we, we name it a bad day and then we get to feel bad about it. So it's like, well, that's kind of a silly, <laughs> silly game to play, you know. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that it seems like almost anything, even the places where our rhythms are interrupted, if you take a step back and take a, take a step back, maybe that's just part of a larger rhythm. Right. Mm. 
And I think that's something that that might be interesting for us to reflect on. I love what you're saying about how naming and um, claiming these times of sacred rhythm is a way that just takes us away from it, right? Because we attempt to cage it, and obviously we can't contain, we can't cage um, something that is of the silence and of the unspoken. And that that claiming is, you know, it goes back to this kind of societal need to control and to know and to own and to claim. And what's so interesting to me is that a lot of the times when I have difficulty getting in or remaining with my rhythm, it's ultimately because I'm trying to control, because I can't do my 8 a.m. silent prayer or because um, someone's visiting and so it throws off my reading schedule, you know, this and that, these kinds of things that just really hinder our ability to remain in rhythm, but but ultimately point us to the fact that maybe we're not really in touch with the sacred rhythm if these kinds of things disturb us so much. And I, I love what, what Mary Oliver says in um, a poetry handbook when she's talking about rhythm. She says, rhythm is one of the most powerful of pleasures. And when we feel a pleasurable rhythm, we hope it will continue. When it does, the sweet grows sweeter. When it becomes reliable, we are in a kind of body heaven. Mm, lovely. And I just love the way that she talks about rhythm. Of course, she's talking about poetry. And I just love the way that rhythm can be carried over to so many different areas of our lives. And, you know, rhythm in the arts, rhythm in our writing, rhythm in our days, rhythm in the ways uh, people parent or people eat, you know, all these things. What I here now and it, I, I'm so glad uh, such great answers from both of you because the two that you feed off of each other and it's so I just want to affirm I feel like that's where my heart is what you're both saying Carl's insight of self-consciousness being problematic on one level that like it's it causes a stopping of rhythm and then yet not being problematic because don't we have to, isn't it the normal working of the mind that we fall in and out of self-consciousness and self-forgetfulness? And I wonder too about the Dalai Lama and Pema children and all these others, they make it clear that it's kind of the way the mind works. And I think ultimately what one might mean by a holy person or a sanctified person or enlightened or whatever word they're using, I wonder if it's more that they it's not that they're not self-conscious, but that, that their identity has shifted, that they realize that when they're in self-consciousness, that it's okay, that this is just, this too shall pass and it's the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And whereas for those of us who are on the beginning end of this spectrum, we we really still believe we are part of the self-consciousness. We are, as Cassidy just said, we're trying to control our 8 a.m. Yeah. sit. We're trying to have the great yeah. meditation experience. And and even though we're not supposed to do that, we still do it. We're still doing yeah. that. And, and yeah. we're trying to break that habit, that new rhythm yeah. coming through. And I feel the way Cassidy just ended there with Mary Oliver and getting into poetry, I think the reason we, the three of us, love poetry and we've talked about it so much is that I think, or it feels like to me at least, that once you start to catch the rhythm of this, that the, your very language starts to create change and that you start to speak in poetic rhythms. You start to be able to mm. talk about the world in a poetic way. Um, mm. And I think that what poets do as artists is that they've sat and they've listened to the world and then 
as Mary Oliver said in that beautiful poem, she just kind of was able to reflect back. She heard the rhythm, and then she can almost imitate with her words the rhythm back to it. I always feel that poetry is like wild language, that it's language Mm -hmm. that actually hears the birds and the wind and the rippling of the pond, and then is just able to imitate that in human speech. And when it's self-conscious speech, when it's about selling something, when it's about political agenda, when it's about my ego, it's no longer that rhythm anymore. It's so self-conscious, it doesn't point beyond itself. Poetry doesn't care if you notice the words, right? I mean, the poet is saying, almost the words are saying, oh my, if, if you saw what I saw in my head, if my words were able to give you the vision, then we're there. Whereas... If I'm selling you something, you come to my page and I want you to buy my book and I want to sell it to you, feel so self-conscious because I'm telling you, look at me, look at my book, look at my words, aren't I amazing? You know, it's not pointing to any vision. It's pointing to something else and it feels, you know, that's the rhythm I feel like it falls out of. And I think there is a space to sell. I think there is a space for ego. I think there is a space to know and to say. I don't want to dismiss that, but... I think our culture just doesn't talk about the poetic and hence why I think encountering silence is an important podcast, (laughs) a little biased. Well, well, um, this is one of the reasons why, you know, again, following Maggie Ross, but why I resist the language of the false self. Yeah. Um, because Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's unfortunate that you know, that creates just another dualism, you know, that the true self is Mm -hmm. the good, is the good self and the false self is kind of like the bad self. And, and I just, I just think that's not, that's not helpful that in, 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 uh, actually my first book, my book, spirituality, I describe it as the survival mind and the playful mind. Oh, that's lovely. um, and, and, you know, and we need the survival mind. We want the survival mind when we're driving. Yes, you know? we do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be poetic yeah, there. Yeah. No. <laughs> you know, yeah. If, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm in, in a state of oneness, when I'm driving, I might be one with the car in front of me. And that's really not, not where I want to go. <laughs> so, you know, so, so we, we, this is why we need the cushion, the meditation cushion, or we need to make music or to make poetry or to make love, you know, or, right. the, or to take a walk in the woods. These are places where the playful mind or the true self, whatever you want to call it, can come out to play. And then, like you say, you know, and this is something, Kevin, I struggle with every day as a writer, but as a contemplative writer, is that, you know, I need to sell books to eat. And yes. so it's important for me that people mm-hmm. buy my books, you know. Of course, and, of course. And, and at the same time, I'm it's like the book that I just finished, you know, which will be a year or two before it gets published is basically a book about how you can't learn the spiritual life from a book. You know, it's like, <laughs> so, so this, this, this fundamental paradox there, you know, it's, you know, Abby Hoffman wrote that book, steal this book. Right. Well, I'm kind of writing a book that's the title could be put this book down. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I, but I appreciate that a hundred percent, Carl, because I, I, you're right. You need to eat. You deserve to eat. You're, you know, like you should, if you wrote a book, you should get paid for it and you should sell it. So just like you should drive the car, um, there's, there is a moment and there is a place that it can be useful and authentic and it doesn't have to be horrible. But at the same time, it, 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 like you said, it's, it's, you feel it's, there's a problem there because you recognize that sometimes our culture just goes all out in selling, all out in ego. And where's the playful mind? Where is that other moment that our culture just wants to erase? It, it's, and it's sad in a way because 
isn't the playful mind really what the human condition's about, the contemplative, the deeper aspect of who we are, the transcendent part of us? Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. We're sitting here recording this the day after the Oscars. And so, of course, I've been thinking a lot about the movie The Shape of Water, which I saw mm-hmm. just last week. And it's a flawed movie. There are some things I don't like about it. I'm not I'm not sure it really deserved best picture, but I think it is it is a very good picture. And one of the things is that you've got these characters, you've got Strickland who is like the epitome of the, quote, false self, you know, this kind of sadistic security guard. And then and then you've got, Eli- I think her name was Eliza, who in many ways is the epitome of the playful mind. You know, she's, she's just, she's sensual and she's a lover and she's not worried about profit or about, you know, results or any of those kinds of things. And so the reality is, and this is why I think the movie is flawed, is that both of those characters are characters. Right. And and the reality is, it's like what John Lennon once said. He said, we're all Adolf, we're all Adolf Hitler and we're all Jesus Christ. And, right. um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and I think, you know, we're all Luke Skywalker and we're all Darth Vader that that the reality is, is that we all have the playful mind in us. We all have the the cunning you know, selling mind or, or false self, or again, whatever you want to call it. Right. And the question you can bring to bring back to our topic, the, the rhythm, how do we find this rhythm between the need to survive and the need to, to do what it takes to survive, but then also the need to wonder and to listen mm-hmm. and to simply breathe and to attend to the silence. You know, I, I do a, a little kind of meditation on the heart to come back to the heart. It's, it's, it's in my book, Befriending Silence. One of the things I tell people is that when the heart is beating, it's, there's still silence, that the silence doesn't go away during the beat. It's not like you have silence and then you lose silence because the heart's beating and then you have more silence. It's all silent. It's right. just that the heartbeat, it, it emerges in the silence. Mm-hmm. And the same, thing, the same thing could be said of poetry or of music or of language or of noise. And so, you know, one of the, you know, our theme is to encounter silence. And I think one of the important things, if we're, if we're really trying to tend to silence and the importance of silence to life and to art and to beauty and to love is this recognition that silence is always there. Right. Again, the metaphor, silence is the portal to the face of God. The face of God is always there. Right. But we yeah. often... We often ignore it, you know, just like we often ignore silence. And mm-hmm. so, and I think the reason why the Stricklands of the world, you know, this sadistic security guard or, or our culture that is so dedicated to acquiring that many of us kind of react against it and we feel that there's a toxicity there is because it's out of rhythm. Right. It's out you of know, rhythm. It's, 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 it's lost. Like you, you already said this, Kevin. It's lost that sense of playfulness, or that sense of wonder, or that sense of of, of vulnerability. And I think those of us who are drawn to silence, we intuitively recognize 
that silence invites us back into that way of being. Right. Right. Not, not that not that we drop anchor there, but that it then reminds us that all of life is held within that 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 sacred presence, that sacred quiet. And this goes back to to the meditation masters that what they then recognize is that it's all grace. What was it? Merton said, you know, just a few days before he died in in the Asian Journal, mm -hmm. he talks about encountering that statue of yeah, the Buddha, the reclining the reclining Buddha, in um in what he calls Ceylon, we would call Sri Lanka. You know, he basically is having you know Merton. You know, every time he turns around, he has another kind of you know epiphany. So he has another one of his epiphanies, and he says, everything is emptiness, and everything is compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's, he got it. No wonder he died six days later. You know, <laughs> he got it. <laughs> well, I have to wonder if, you know, some of this, Carl, going back to what you were saying about, you know, we have to figure out the balance. We, we need to eat. We need to work. We need to, you know, um, be able to make ends meet. I think some of this has to do with, with intensity, right? And then living in a society, how when we are doing well in our careers or whatever, it kind of perpetuates this um, need for more or this desire for more, Not because uh, clearly it's not a need, right? And I love what Thomas Merton says in um, No Man is an Island. There's a chapter called Being and Doing, and he says, we cannot be happy if we expect to live all the time in the highest peak of intensity. Happiness is not a matter of intensity, but of balance and order and rhythm and harmony. Music is pleasing not only because of the sound, but because of the silence that is in it. Without the alteration of sound and silence, there would be no rhythm. If we strive to be happy by filling all the silences of our lives with sound, productive by turning all of life's leisure into work, and real by turning all of our being into doing, we would only succeed in producing a hell on earth. If we have no silence, God is not heard in our music. If we have no rest, God does not bless our work. If we twist our lives out of shape in order to fill every corner of them with action and experience, God will silently withdraw from our hearts and leave us empty. And of course, he goes on there, but just this idea of intensity and the way that society perpetuates that need on us to um, always be doing, always be making money, always be, you know, doing all the things we need to do. And of course, we do have a lot of things we need to do, and, and that's very important, but I think we lose something when we can get caught in that tunnel of doing and forget how to be. No, exactly. And I, I, all this stuff is making me think, especially the way Carl says the silence isn't going away. And now your quote from Merton, uh, that silence is right there in the music. And if you don't have the silence, then you, how can you hear the music? It's reminding me completely of the uh, quote from In Pursuit of Silence from John Cage, where he says mm -hmm. that, that noise, he says where, that sound is just the bubble on, on top mm -hmm. that floats mm -hmm. on noise. And, mm. you know, and so that these bubbles, they pop and then all of a sudden silence is there. So, you know, it's not like silence gets eradicated or destroyed. It just is so encompassing. And so it goes with that quote from Merton. You know, everything's mm -hmm. mercy, everything's compassion. It's like, where do you think the mercy and compassion is gone? You look at the horribleness of the world, where is mercy? It feels like mm -hmm. it's gone, it's been obliterated. No, it's it's right there. Uh, it just likes noise isn't obliterating the silence. All is being held in silence. All is being held with a merciful, there is the potential for another thing. 
It it, it kind of reminds yeah. me of like potential. That that's my nice way of thinking. Almost there, every moment is a seed for the possibility of salvation, for healing, mm. for love, for friendship. Every moment is that potential. The potential doesn't disappear, and so then mm-hmm. that means that that means the ground of life is right here, even in the midst of death. Even, yeah. you know, so, and, you know, ultimately that's the Christian message is that death doesn't have the final word. What looks like death is really not death, that there's something else here. And now that's not to take away and to be so Pollyanna about it. I heard a great interview today uh, from our friend uh, Jessica Mesman Griffith. I heard her give an interview and she made some comment about you know, that people suffer and that we need to take that seriously as spiritual mm-hmm. people can't dismiss the suffering and make it sound so trite. And I don't mean to do that, but I all, but at the same time, she made the comment, like, we shouldn't despair either. There's this rhythm of holding it sacred, holding sorrow and grief and pain and holding and taking that and realizing that hurts and holding people and realizing you can't force someone not to feel grief. You need to feel mm-hmm. that grief. You need to sit with it. But then there is the rhythm of grief doesn't have the final word. Grief doesn't have to say there is no hope. Grief doesn't have to say this is the end. And so that, again, we're right back to rhythm. So a question for you guys, just based on all the things we're talking about, all three of us are in a very, very lucky and privileged position. We can insert silence into our days when we need it. We can find this sacred rhythm. And so what do, what do we say to those people that, you know, are trying to make ends meet and working three or four jobs and have four or five kids? How does one insert a sacred rhythm and the silences in those kinds of moments? And I know in previous episodes we've talked about ways to insert silence despite our busyness, but I wonder, you know, for someone like that, it's, it, it's not necessarily an option to to do that as easily. You know, I think about people in prisons or even people who live on the street that Mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, when you lack privilege in our culture, you don't have access to silence, Mm -hmm. to -hmm. to external silence. You, you are in a place that is very noisy and that, that you just have very, very little control over your ability to, to shield yourself from Mm -hmm. that. And so I think that's a very, very, significant question. And, and I've thought that at some point we need to do an episode on silence and privilege. Yes. Um, yeah. But, but I guess, Absolutely. you know, the one, the one thing that I would say, and again, hoping that I'm not just speaking from a privileged place, even though I am, like, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, a very, very, you know, a blessed person, very, you know, I have, I have all the, all the privileges that our culture kind of acknowledges, but the, I think the reality is, is that to be alive, we have to somehow find moments of rest. We have to somehow find moments of sleep. I mean, if we don't do that, we'll die. Um, Now, now, of course, many, many of us are sleep deprived. Even people Mm -hmm. with great privilege are often sleep deprived. So that's yet Mm -hmm. another issue. You know, I think it would be fascinating maybe even to get some of the people on who were in the movie, Cassidy, to talk mm-hmm. about kind of the health effects of not having enough silence in your life and how that hurts our health. I know people have done research on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back to your example of, you know, just somebody, even somebody who, who has some, some, some financial resources, but they have a huge family and a very demanding, demanding life. 
you know, there's this question of, can we find stolen moments in our day? Mm. Five minutes in the morning before the kids wake up or, you know, it's just, you get home after dropping them off from school and just one minute in the car before mm-hmm. you go in and, and start doing your, your work of the day or whatever. I know it's not, it's not a perfect answer, but God knows we live in yeah. an imperfect world. And so the, I think the, 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 one of my meditation teachers used to say, I don't care if you only sit 10 minutes a day, but sit every day. Mm. And I, and I think his thinking was if you sit for 10 minutes a day and you persevere before long, you'll be sitting 20 or 30 minutes a day. That's certainly been my experience. Mm. And, um, and I imagine that's true for a lot of people, but, but it's not easy. And especially with small children, or especially if you're, if you're, you know, in a situation of economic duress, it's just that much harder. And I think for those of us who do have social or economic privilege, it's just a reminder that we have an obligation to try to help others to find that place of rest or that place of silence in their lives in whatever way we can. I mean, we don't all have to be messiahs. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but, but work, work for a world where there is more economic democracy or economic, the, the, the wealth is more readily shared and, and a world where, you know, where people have access to childcare. I mean, all those kinds of social justice kinds of things. But I think it all ties in that, that if you're, if you're affluent, you have an obligation to work for justice. And if you're, if you're not affluent, you have an obligation to take the very best care of yourself that you can. So we, we all have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and this probably does feed into an entire episode of of silence and privilege, where we'd probably get at some of this because I, I your question is a great one, Cassidy, and and Carl's already started to sketch out things. I would say too that on some level we have to. He's right. We we find ways of getting sleep, even though we're sleep deprived. We do get some sleep, and we do find ways of feeding ourselves, and we do find ways of getting things, even though if we do that horribly, and we might be struggling to to find food if we're that poor. So there's all this struggle in place. So we do have to figure out a way to, to get something in. And, and if it can't be a five-minute meditation, you know, if we can't sit down in a chair somewhere, well, if we're walking to the train station on the way to work, if you're in the car and you have to commute to your job, you can turn the radio off. There, there are places where you can figure out that, okay, this isn't the best place. I'm not sitting in a meditation cushion. I'm not at a retreat center. I'm not getting massaged and, you know, and, and, and treated like a wonderful, spiritual, wonderful thing, wonderland here. But you can find that kind of quiet to have the rhythm, you know, a, a reset. There is a deeply systematic problem that, though, we do have to acknowledge that. We do, because our culture... As I say, it's a blind spot. Silence is a blind spot of the mind. And because everything is about uh, consuming and profit and doing and achieving, so then that voice is the voice that gets you know, raised to a feverish pitch. And so then we don't, anything that isn't that voice is useless. You can cut it out. That's extra space. You don't need 10 minutes of silence. Those are 10 minutes you could be selling something. So sell something. This isn't, mm-hmm. you don't need 10 minutes of silence. This is when you should be doing your political agenda or whatever you're doing. So, mm-hmm. and, and then you get right back into that Merton quote, you make hell on earth. And while capitalism and the economic system and work and, you know, our countries and everything, sh- there's plenty, you don't have to be an anarchist. I can say that there's lovely, lovely things going on in our culture and our civilization, 
but there's deeply problematic ones too. <laughs> that like it, the the system is almost set up to like discount silence. And if you're the conspiracy-minded type, you wonder if the system is purposely meant to stop you from being silent. I, I used to love George Carlin's uh, stand-up, and he was very aggressive against this, you know, the status quo and the institutions. And he kind of said the the system's rigged. It's it's and it's set up so that you can't find out that the system is rigged. And he used to like joke around and tell jokes about that. And you know, there's some truth to to the sense of if you set up something corporately and educationally and politically. You wonder why that there isn't time off and and quiet and does and housing designs and city designs and park designs. Why isn't there more space for silence, etc.? I think we can do things. I think it's not hopeless. I think we can design. We have plenty of work to do. But I think to answer your question quickly, I would say spend some time outside. You know, even just taking a moment to look at the the sky and taking a deep breath can pull you out of yourself get a chance to walk in the park or be by the water. Even if you, if you can't because you're busy and you have to work all the time, then on the commute, is there a way that you can be present with your breath or your heartbeat? Is there a way that you can kind of just be quiet? And if it's just five minutes early in the morning or right before you go to bed at night, that might be enough to start. And then maybe that five minutes will make you want to do 10, 20, 50, you know, whatever. So mm. they aren't easy answers and it's probably a whole other podcast, but I think that would be a start. Well, my friends, I feel like, there, again, as usual, there's tons to say, uh, but we've already been talking a while, and I think, I think we should be wrapping up. And so I, wa- I want to thank you for your thoughts and for your time, and thank you for being with me as usual. I just have been enjoying our time as a podcast and as a team, and it, it does me so much good to have these conversations with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I, I'm, I'm nurtured. And so it's just a privilege to be part of this. Absolutely. And I'd love to just read one final thing. Please end us with a quote from uh, Monica Furlong in her book, Contemplating Now. From this point on, we see the other face of silence, a face full of warmth, hope, meaning, love, tension, boredom, loneliness disappear. There is a renewed sense of rhythm and relaxation, of order and identity, all emerging from a state of stillness. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.